tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, we're back. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. This is Alabama's only union talk radio program, and we are now in overtime. That is the second half of the show where we... uh, where we are online only. We have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors and uh, where my trackpad has just broken. Oh, man. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm going to have to... Hey, one sec. I actually got a... You got a what? Oh, oh no, no. On my laptop. But... Um, so my, my trackpad is broken now, so I'm going to have to use my phone for the notes, uh, but that is going to, that will be fine. Oh, hey, you've got a, you've got a mouse for me. Um, but this, this laptop has been, has been with me through thick and thin. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, maybe I don't need to take it to the thing. I can just have a, I can just have a mouse. There we go. Um, but this laptop, I got it when I was a senior in high school so that's been like uh eight years ago i got this so this is a nearly 10 year old some honorable service there yeah honorable service but uh and and she's gonna be able to continue going thanks to uh thanks to ben appreciate that yeah i i've got a quick story just to fill some time um i know uh uh, I believe it was Genesis and Bob were talking about how companies can change up your uh, contract willy nilly if you don't have one. Mm. If you're a you're one of those right to work state people, and right, uh, right. one of the big employers, some of the one of the biggest employers in North Alabama, I won't name them directly, but uh, a health employer in North Alabama during the COVID uh, pandemic, they decided to change uh, how much. A notification you're supposed to give to leave in good standing, quote unquote, mm. which, you know, legally they can't be like, you can't quit. You know, you legally have the right to quit at any moment. But right. they said uh, over a month you had to tell them before you quit. <laughs> and and the problem with this is you'd say, well, it's a free market. You just go to the other hospital. You go to the other healthcare clinic. You go work for somebody else. But they own um, every major hospital north of Birmingham. <laughs> And south of Nashville. Yeah. So when you're dealing with a monopoly and they change something like that, um, it is really like, all right, well, if you want to work at any of these major facilities, uh, yeah. make sure you give uh, a month and a half's notice before they, you even does, t- just to just to give them the heads up. You know, yeah. Does this unnamed healthcare provider who is uh, it's it's very I have no idea who this <laughs> who is. Could it be? Uh, it's it's you know you're you're being very very good with your uh, anonymity to this I to know. this employer. Uh, but do they give six weeks of notice when they're going to fire somebody? 
I don't believe that's um, that's required of them. And I never saw that during COVID. I don't think they were, uh, you know, giving you the heads up anytime before that. <laughs> but in the middle of the pandemic, when people literally healthcare workers were dying mm-hmm. of COVID and many were retiring after COVID or during COVID because of the strain of the illness, right. they decided that it would be a good idea to pretty much keep people as long as they possibly could. That's and crazy. I'm not sure if any of that was ever rolled back either. So that's a that's a good question for the that's future bonkers. here. And if you had a union <laughs> contract per se, I don't believe that would happen. That would be uh, uh, illegal. They'd have to negotiate with yep. you even. Probably, probably. Um, so we have, uh, I think we've lost several people on YouTube to the UAW's live stream where they are going over the details of the GM tentative agreement. Um, so we're really excited about that. Um, we, uh, pr- I don't know if we'll be diving into the GM tentative agreement, um, but we do have, we've got the details for Stellantis and Ford already out and we've got the highlights for GM. And so we're going to go over that because last week, that you the UAW announced a tentative agreement with every single one of the big three and uh the agreement is very similar across all three companies and so we're going to go over some of the highlights and, and because they're very very good um at all of the companies every single employee will get at minimum an 11% raise and a $5,000 ratification bonus immediately an 11% raise minimum huge huge a 25% general wage increase over the life of the contract, which is bigger than all raises of the last 23 years combined. All of the raises from 2000 to 2022 are less than the wage gains in this one contract. So that's huge. And the expected general wage increase after COLA is going to be 33%. And the COLA formula that they got at all of these companies is the pre-2009 COLA formula that they gave up to help save these companies. Um, So that's great. And we've talked about COLA before, um, you know, and that basically just, you know, uh, you you share the risk of inflation with the employer, not just the employee. The employee is not the only one taking the risk of COLA. Uh, of inflation. They also took down the progression to top rate. They cut the progression scale down from like between eight and 16 years, depending on which company you were at to three years at all of the companies. So it's only going to take you three years to get you to the top rate now. If this contract is ratified, the starting wage is going to increase 67% over the course of the contract uh, from $18 an hour to $30 an hour. That's going to be the starting wage at each of the big three. Um, So, I mean, huge, huge stuff. And now we're talking about, you know, four and a half years out, 2028, but still $30 an hour is the starting wage. I think it's probably still going to be pretty good in 2028. (laughs) Um, Parts distribution center workers are going to get as much as a 100% raise. As much as a 100% raise because they're going to be brought into the assembly plant pay scale uh, up from the second tier 
uh, former parts distribution pay scale. So that is obviously going to be huge. They were able to significantly attack the problem of temporary and supplemental employees. Uh, and, you know, the they called this phenomenon permatemps. Permatemps is what they had at UAW facilities <laughs> across. Permatemps. Yeah. Oh. So they would have people that were quote unquote temporary employees working at these facilities for years. And when you're a temporary employee, you don't have not only are you working at a lower wage, but you don't have the retirement plans. You don't have the same health care coverage. You don't have the same job protections and job security. And they would keep them on as quote unquote temporary employees for years. And so this was a really big part of the negotiations. And at Stellantis specifically, they got immediate conversion of all supplemental employees and uh, going forward supplemental employees will automatically be converted to permanent uh, progression employees after only nine months they so Stellantis will only be able to employ supplemental employees for nine months before they will automatically be converted to permanent employees and those nine months will go towards uh, the progression and so this means that the, currently the lowest paid temporary employees so the the temporary employees who are the newest and have the lowest pay like fifteen dollars who are making fifteen dollars an hour right now by the end of this contract they will get a one hundred and sixty eight percent raise they will go from making today fifteen dollars an hour to forty two dollars an hour at Stellantis by 2028 and on top of that they will have the retirement packages the 100 percent employer paid health care and all of this kind of stuff um it's also important to point out that Stellantis came into this negotiation wanting to cut 5,000 more jobs after they had idled the Belvedere assembly plant and which cut thousands of jobs itself. So Stellantis came into these negotiations wanting to cut 5,000 jobs. They left the negotiations with a commitment to add 5,000 jobs and to reopen the Belvedere assembly plant and add a new battery assembly plant at the Belvedere assembly. So huge increased investment reopening a plant with new product commitment, a new battery plant, and a new Mopar hub, a new parts distribution center. That's all the new, the new jobs, the job creation, the job creators at the UAW have created 5,000 jobs at Stellantis. Um, and the, uh, they also got an agreement from Stellantis and GM to have card check agreements at all of their, um, EV joint ventures, and as soon as all of these uh, uh, the employees, as soon as they get majority support, a majority of cards signed at all of the EV uh, plants and battery assemblies and and, and battery production uh, at GM and Stellantis, once they show majority support, those plants will immediately be brought under the master agreement and they will get 75% of the top rate. They will make 75% of the top rate uh, at these battery and EV production plant. And in 2028, the UAW's plan is to push the EV production uh, wages and benefits up to uh, bringing them 100% in line with the regular assembly production scale. 
And I might point out something interesting. Uh, Toyota decided to yes. give some raises out, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll be getting Not that. unionized, but uh, suddenly they're getting a benefit of someone else's union. Yeah, 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 exactly. They, at Stellantis, they got a 72 to 140% increase to the company contributions in the 401k. That's huge. And they also got this really cool program. They got... Uh, confirmed for the uh, employees the same car lease program that managers have. So they uh, so now employees at Stellantis will have uh, significantly uh, the the ability to uh, get significantly di- discounted leases with no credit check. It will include registration and plates with. 24-7 roadside assistance and oil changes and regular maintenance will be included in the lease. And you can get a new vehicle every single year. So depending on what the price for those leases are going to be, that is like life-changing um, and is going to be a huge deal uh, and a huge win for these Stellantis employees to be able to actually drive the cars that they're making every day. Um, so like I said, uh, with EVs, uh, GM and Stellantis have agreed to card check provisions, which will bring the uh, those plants into the master agreement after they show majority support. And uh, Ford did not do that uh, across the EV ventures except for at two. Um, so they agreed to have card check provisions and bring them under the master with majority support at two of their EV plants, uh, but not all of them. And so UAW's uh, president, Sean Fain, has told Bloomberg that he anticipates a, quote, ugly fight uh, in the in the campaign to unionize uh, EV plants at Ford. So we'll see what happens there. Um, And, you know, all of this stuff is really, really big. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, those are huge improvements and huge wage increases. And, and this is going to amount to the company spending a lot more on the employees. And so some industry analysts, Sean, like Sean Fain said in the announcement of the Ford uh, tentative agreement details, he said that, you know, some industry analysts are saying that, oh, this might endanger jobs. They might be uh, incentivized to ship more production overseas. And that's why Sean Fain was determined and they were able to secure the right to strike over plant closings outsourcing and product commitment. So if any of these employers attempt to outsource jobs uh, uh, overseas or, uh, you know, subcontract any of this work or decline to commit new product to plants, they can take their whole uh, uh, the, the whole thing offline. They can go on strike and it's in the contract. And that is huge. That power to, um, push for new product commitment at, uh, at facilities. And so that gives them a lot of power to, uh, to make sure that their jobs are secure. And they, uh, made it a point to end the contracts on April 30th, 2028, uh, which means that the contract will be expired uh, expired on May Day, 2028. And here is Sean Fain explaining why he did that. We went to each of the big three and proposed an expiration date of April 30th, 2028. We did this for several reasons. First, this allows us to strike on May Day or International Workers' Day. May Day was born out of an intense struggle by workers in the United States to win an eight-hour day. 
That's a struggle that is just as relevant today as it was in 1889. Even though May Day has its roots here in the United States, it is widely celebrated by workers all over the world. It's more than just a day of commemoration. It's a call to action. We invite unions around the country to align your contract expirations with our own so that together we can begin to flex our collective muscles. If we're going to truly take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so that it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, then it's important that we not only strike, but that we strike together. Uh, so that is really important, really good stuff. And we've seen, you know, some 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 activists like on uh, or, you know, activists on like Reddit and stuff try to organize, quote unquote, general strikes. And uh, you you can't. You, you can't make a uh, an online post calling for a general strike and expect it to happen. That's just not how it works. Um, you've got to actually organize, you know, maybe you should organize your own workplace before you start trying to organize a general strike. That's what you should do. Form a union in your workplace. Uh, but this May Day 2028 deadline is going to be the... Uh, the next best opportunity to actually organize towards something like a general strike in the United States that we have had in probably a century. So if you are somebody who is interested in seeing something like a general strike, then unionize your workplace, get a contract, and set the expiration date for April 30th, 2028. Uh, and that's how you can organize towards a general strike in uh, on May the 1st, uh, 2028. And so he... Uh, uh, and Sean Fain also talked about the um, talked about the difference that these negotiations in this contract campaign has made in his life and in the life of of UAW members across the country and 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 union members and non-union members across the country. And here's him talking about you know what the what the UAW's logo means, what it used to mean to him, and what it means to him now. There was a time when it was hard to wear this wheel. Our union has been through some dark days. And like many of you, I walked a lonely path. What we have accomplished together has turned this wheel around. When I see that wheel, I no longer see a union on defense, in decline, or under threat. When I see that wheel, I see power. I see the future of the working class. I didn't do that. Chuck didn't do that. You, the membership, did that. The stand-up strike will go down in history as an inflection point for our union and for our movement. Just over seven weeks ago, I asked you all if you had faith. I asked you if you were ready to move mountains the members at Michigan Assembly Local 900, Chicago Assembly Local 551, and Kentucky Truck Local 862 heard the call. So there we go. Uh, that's, I mean, really powerful stuff. And uh, like you, like you alluded to, uh, Ben, this the gains have not been limited to UAW members in union plants at the Big Three. Um, we have seen, uh, we've seen. Toyota, right here in Alabama, right here in Huntsville, they've announced, uh, and and this is also nationwide, but also but right here in Huntsville, immediately 
they're going to be giving all of their production employees a 9.2% raise. <laughs> it's not the 11% raise that UAW members are getting, yeah. but a 9.2% raise and Toyota has cut their progression in half from eight years to four years. So not only are you going to get at Toyota an immediate almost 10% raise, it's going to take you half as long to get to the top rate at Toyota uh, than it did before the UAW strike at the big three. And so if you want, if you are working for Toyota and you want the rest of that 11% raise <laughs> and you want to take the uh, progression scale from the four years at Toyota down to the union progression scale of three years at the big three automakers, contact the UAW today, UAW.org. And that's how you're going to get. And, and because the Toyota did not, give these raises out of the goodness of their heart. In fact, they had already given two raises earlier in the year, and they typically do not give more than one or two raises in a year. So this is directly in response to the UAW's uh, contract campaign at the big three automakers and is only in response to that. It is not out of the goodness of their heart at Toyota that they're doing that. They're doing this to try to stave off a union campaign because they know that if Toyota workers across the country unionize that they will be able to get more than 9.2% right now and a four-year progression scale. And so that's what you have to do if you're a Toyota worker. If you want to get the rest of that, more of that value that you're creating, the rest of the uh, uh, compensation that UAW members across the country are now getting, you've got to unionize. You've got to unionize. Um and this kind of stuff is also happening at Tesla, where uh, they have Tesla has announced a, a a second wage increase this year at its Berlin factory in Germany amid a union push from one of the auto unions there. And uh, there's almost certainly going to be a wage increase at Tesla factories in the United States as a result of this contract uh, that the UAW has negotiated with the big three automakers. And uh, Josh Idelson in Bloomberg, a, a good labor reporter for Bloomberg, uh, he wrote about this saying that the UAW has before tried to organize the electric car leader and others. Thane says these efforts failed because of the union's corruption, coziness with bosses, and bad contracts. Thane's predecessors, Bob King and Dennis Williams, both met with Musk. Uh, in uh, but then in 2020, Williams <laughs> uh, pleaded guilty to embezzlement and racketeering. So n not good, as they say. Um, but Sean Fain, the union leader, says he sees no reason to get FaceTime with the Tesla CEO. I don't know what that would serve, uh, he said. Maybe we'll meet at the bargaining table once we've organized. So... Uh, this is really good news, not only for union auto workers, but for non-union auto workers across the country. We're seeing record wages, um, and, and and it's you know this is and and this is this is the same thing that we see that we've seen borne out by the data in any data. When you take a look at union density in an area, not only we we know that on average union workers make more. But when union density is higher in a geographic region, that increases the wages of non-union workers as well. And so, you know, this is all this has all been borne out, not just in the auto industry or in certain ge geographic sectors. It's been borne out across industries and, ac and across geographies. Um, but, you know, uh, I like to I like to have, you know, de debates or conversations with people that I don't agree with. And last week. 
or you know, not just last week, over over the over the course of this contract campaign. Over the course of this contract campaign, um, Yaffe, Michael Yaffe, a conservative radio host on WBNN, you can listen to him from 9 to 11, I believe, weekday mornings, 9 to 11. Um, he has been, you know, he, he's been not very positive about this UAW campaign. Um, he has been critiquing the, uh, the push by Republicans, by some Republicans, to at least appear more labor friendly, uh, you know, critiquing. Uh, the, the, you know, the interest in walking on picket lines, um, Donald Trump's supposed, you know, overture to UAW members by speaking at a non-union auto parts manufacturer <laughs> to, to a largely non-union crowd. Uh, that was a very strange overture to union workers, but, you know, nevertheless, that's what he billed it as. And, uh, you know, so Yaffe has been critical of this. And then when this deal was announced last week, he put out a segment on, and, and so he does kind of a similar thing that we do. He does the show, and then he releases clips, uh, uh, but not on YouTube. He just releases it on podcast platforms. And so uh, he clipped one of his segments, and he titled it, The UAW Deal is a Bad Deal for America. And so, um, you know, so I've, I've listened to it. I'm, I'm not totally convinced by that argument, but, but uh, I wanted to give him, uh, give him some time on this show uh, to try to walk me through some of his thought process. And so we've got Michael Yaffe in the Zoom now. Uh, Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah. Can you guys hear me, by the way? Yes. Sound okay? Yes. Okay, great. good. I didn't convince you, Jacob. Yeah. I thought maybe that one segment would have got you on yeah, board. I just convinced you completely. Dang. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's how you know. I mean, I'll try like, better next time. Yeah, yeah. Next time, next time, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that the segment will convince me. But that's that's how I build it. You know, we're gonna have a conversation, and maybe you'll turn me into an anti-union activist. Um, but I don't know if you have. Uh, I don't know if you've been listening for the last you know 20 minutes or so. But we've been talking about the UAW deal, going over some of the details of the agreements. And you've heard the highlights, 25% wage increase over uh, the four and a half years of the contract, 33% once COLA is included is the estimate, 11% raise immediately, uh, starting wages are going to increase 67% from $18 an hour to $30 an hour, three-year progression down from eight years to 16 years. Uh, uh, second tier workers are going to get as much as a hundred percent raise at Stellantis. The lowest paid supplemental employees are going to see a wage increase of 168% from making $15 an hour right now to making the top rate of $42 an hour in 2028. Uh, and then we've seen non-union automakers, uh, particularly to Toyota, uh, answer this by also increasing wages, 9.2% raise uh, for Toyota workers um, and cutting their progression in half from four, uh, from eight years to four years. And uh, they have the UAW has created jobs. You know, people say that UA, uh, that, that unions are, are not job creators and they created jobs. Stellantis came to the table wanting to wanting to cut 5,000 jobs, and they left the negotiating table creating 5,000 more jobs, opening the idled Belvedere assembly plant, committing to open a new parts distribution center, committing to a new battery plant that will be under the UAW's National Master Agreement. And so all of these things sound really good, not only to UAW members, but to the non-union workers in the auto sector as well. As well. So, so tell me, tell me why I'm, 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 uh, 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 why I'm wrong? Why I'm not understanding the situation correctly? 
Well, uh, first, I, I do want to say, if I am a member of the union, yeah, obviously the workers feel like they got a pretty good deal here, and I, I don't blame I don't blame them for them individually. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good deal. But I mean, we've had a debate over unions in general, so we don't need to have that debate again. But when I say, you know, is this good for America? I'm just not sure this kind of deal making with unions is good for the economy as a whole. It's good for the country as a whole. And I'm not sure it's good for the companies because I think the companies are eventually either going to have to cut costs and cut corners in their products, but I think eventually they're going to have to lay off people. I, I mean, I know you were talking about the striking and they're going to strike if there are layoffs and plant closures. But eventually, at some point, I think these costs are going to hit them. The chickens are going to have to come home to roost, so to speak. And that's going to put these companies in a tough position. And if the companies really aren't succeeding as much as they can, I, I don't know if that really is good for the American economy. Well, you know, I mean, the question is really, you know, the value is being created. Um, and the question is, who is it going to go to, right? Is it going to go to the workers who actually create the product or is it going to go to people's, you know, uh, people who own stocks in the company on on Wall Street? Um, and this contract has shifted some of that, uh, you know, has really kind of shifted some of the percentage there. We saw like from 2019 mm -hmm. to 2023 that shareholders received more money in dividends than UAW members did in wages. Like, that just sounds absurd to me, uh, that <laughs> you would be paying people, uh, shareholders as a class, more than workers as a class. And and that sounds, that doesn't sound like a good deal for America, right? That, that all of this money is going to be concentrated at the top uh, and not being distributed, you know, in the communities. Well... One thing I do want to say is a lot of times when you're talking about dividends, when you're talking about stocks, you have a lot of mutual funds that are involved in this. So you have a lot of ordinary workers that have their 401ks kind of involved in this. So when the stocks do well for a company, that can help individual workers with 401ks in their retirement. But overall, it's not even so much that I disagree with the decision making of companies in terms of, OK, maybe they should pay their workers a little more. I just don't like it, this collective way of doing it. I want the companies to do it because it's what's best for their company. And I, I just don't know, looking at now, it wasn't as bad as I thought. When they were asking for 32-hour work week, I was like, this seems like a little much to me. This seems like you're trying to transform the economy more than just help your individual workers. But I want the companies to be able to make that decision. I want them to say, okay, we have to make a profit to stay in business. And does this help us stay in business or are they going to cut corners in the long run? I'm just not sure that's going to take, but I, I think a lot of this, frankly, I think these car companies feel like the government will bail them out if they get in trouble in the future. Why do you think that the company should have sole discretion over uh, these kind of stuff like wages and working conditions? Um, and, 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 and why is it that you think that that companies will or should make the decision to pay the workers more out of, you know, the kindness of their heart? I mean, we've seen that, like, that's just historically, like, not really borne out. You know, I mean, automaking was a was not only like not a career when it, you know, in, in, in the early uh, um, 
in its early iterations, it was like a temporary job. They had, I mean, it was like Amazon is today, 100%, 150% um, uh, turnover. People couldn't stay there uh, because they'd get fired or they'd be injured or they'd leave. Um, you know, coal mining was a very similar thing. It was not a career. Uh, it was something that people were actually... Uh, uh, they were coal miners were like the first independent contractors. They weren't even considered employees. And it was unions that changed that, that actually turned these jobs into like good career jobs. It wasn't out of the, you know, the kindness of the company's hearts. Right. So like, why do you why do you why do you think that that that's a, an incorrect analysis? Well, and, and I will say I'm not necessarily thinking like CEOs of companies do things out of the kindness of their hearts. I. I don't have any deals with any CEOs. There are some CEOs that definitely would not do that. I just tend to think the marketplace is the best way to kind of regulate this kind of stuff. So in order for a company to really succeed, especially against competition, they're going to have to make sure their companies run well. And it is true that sometimes, okay, they're going to have to cut costs for labor to compete. But there are other times where you go too much in the wrong direction and you just start losing your employees to a company that's gonna pay them more because their product and services are doing well and the companies are doing well. I just tend to believe more in the marketplace as a whole than I do in terms of, well, they're doing it out of the benefit of their hearts. And I'm not saying that that always looks perfect. I'm not saying it ever looks perfect. The free market's not perfect. I just think it's the best system the world has ever seen in terms of being able to regulate these kind of things. There's competition for labor. We see it right now with a lot of companies. They're competing for labor. You talked about how the unions are um, encouraging other companies to raise price, to raise wages. I think it's a part of it, but I think, frankly, it's also they need the jobs. Toyota Mazda plant here, they just need people. So you have competition for labor. So I, when you just dump a bunch of money in certain areas, you have to ask yourself, is that making the company more productive? Or is it just raising costs for everyone, raising inflation for everyone? And is it good for the company's bottom line as a whole, not just now, but in the future? And sometimes I worry about that when looking at these deals, where you're focused on what the workers get out of it, but is the company as a whole going to be doing better and going to be able to survive in the future out of this? Because even the union workers don't do well if the company goes under. Right. And that's why the unions saved the auto companies during 2008. Uh, <laughs> right. Because and, and that's and that's another like super, super, I think, malicious mischaracterization of unions that, that we want to destroy the businesses that we work for. Uh, because, you know, in, in, with with the UAW, the UAW saved these businesses in large part. It was the, the UAW in, co in cooperation with the taxpayer. Uh, the UAW took billions of dollars in losses. Uh, in uh, cut wages, losing COLA, cuts to pensions, cuts to 401ks, healthcare, all of this kind of stuff. Huge losses to save these companies. And so, of course, you know, unions and, and workers and, our, and, and the members are willing to make sacrifices when the, uh, you know, when there is actually a legitimate fiscal threat to the companies that we work for. But, uh, you know... <laughs> We see that the the people at the top are not willing to do that. You know, I mean, this uh, we see that the, the Ford CEO, GM, all of these people make hundreds of times more than the median worker at these places. And so, you know, that seems like why does nobody talk about is that good for the company? I mean, Toyota CEO doesn't make. 
20, 30 million dollars a year. Toyota CEO, I think, makes one or two million dollars a year. So, like, why is there why why is there not conversations on, you know, or why do you not have conversations about is it good for the CEOs to be making this much money? Is it good for the shareholders to be making this much money instead of investing that money in new plants or instead of investing in their workforce and rewarding them for continued employment or, you know, stuff like that? Why is that a good allocation of resources? I'm not necessarily saying it is. I mean, I drive a Mazda, you know, so I feel like maybe Mazda is doing something right. You talked about Toyota. Uh, those plants aren't unionized, and yet their employees do pretty well compared to the CEO salary like you just mentioned. So I think there is something to be said about if you have companies acting badly, if you have CEOs acting badly, not allocating their resources right, um, the market can take care of that. Maybe that's the reason why Toyota does pretty well, because they understand how to manage their businesses better than than Ford or GM. It's not even so much that I think that companies are automatically going to do the right thing. I just think the marketplace is better and competition is better at kind of regulating this stuff than collective strikes, collective bargaining um, that we see that forces these companies into union contracts, not just for like temporary, you know, it's not like just like a CEO who, okay, he's getting paid too much. We're going to fire him, pay the next one less. It's like permanent stuff here. And when the company doesn't do as well for a certain year, um, it's not like, okay, your your wages are tied to that. You don't get a pay cut if the company's not making a profit that year. So that that that's that's my only argument here. Is it's more the process than defending companies. I'm not here necessarily to defend companies on an individual basis. I just tend to defend the free market allowing these companies to make these decisions on their own. Why do you not think that, that unions are, are a part of the free market, <clears throat> whatever that means? Um, well, uh, for one, I do, I do think that you shouldn't be forced. You know, that, that's why you have it here. It's sort of a collectivization thing where it's like, okay, as a collective, all these employees strike. I think then they, if the companies want to, they should be able to fire them and hire new employees. But there are a lot of different regulations that kind of prevent that. So in terms of do I not think really. unions are going to go away? <laughs> not really, of- actually. I mean, the, the national uh, – and it, unfortunately, I think. I think it's unfortunate that that's not the case. I think that the state should – the state should very much uh, encourage more – you know, worker power. Uh, but the National Labor Relations Act, and it's and it's insane that it's been interpreted this way. But the National Labor Relations Act does have a prohibition against firing striking workers. Um, uh, and so, for, but it was very quick that the Supreme Court somehow, you know, <laughs> the supposedly originalist and textualist institution uh, said that, oh, this law doesn't actually mean that, you know, you can't get rid of striking workers. Uh, it means that you can't fire them, but you can permanently replace them, which is somehow different than firing them. And that is totally legal. It's called the McKay Doctrine. Um, so it's it's actually, it is actually legal to permanently replace striking workers. You can't say that it is firing them because somehow that's different. Um, but functionally, hmm. uh, employers can permanently replace and, 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 you know, functionally fire employees who strike. Okay. That's very interesting. I'll talk more into the details of that. Um, but yeah, I, I just tend to believe, and like I said, I am not someone who thinks my argument is going to win anytime soon. 
I know I'm an idealist, but I tend to believe that workers, if they want better, they should be able to uh, negotiate their contracts on an individual basis instead of sort of this collective mindset that they force that these companies to bend. And it seems good right now, but is that going to be profitable for the company as a whole? And when I saw some of the demands in the beginning of this, now it turns out maybe that was a negotiating tactic and they didn't get everything. I was a little bit concerned that I was like, okay, is this really about doing what's better for your union employees? Or is this about like kind of transforming how our whole economy works? And the hourly wage thing was part of that, but there were other parts of that as well. Yeah, well, and you mentioned the 32-hour work week um, and and that, you know, that, that you thought that was bad. And I'm curious why that would be bad, because we are seeing, you know, productivity increasing and estimates that EV production is going to uh, estimates. Estimates really do actually range. You know, there's a lot of, of kind of people running around like alarmist about the the labor cuts that that will be necessary for EV. Like some estimates say that it's going to need 40% less labor to uh, construct an EV vehicle. And, you know, there are estimates on the other side that say that actually, if you if you look at all of the construction that's needed for to, to maintain uh, an EV infrastructure and to build all these cars and all this stuff, you'll actually need more workers. <clears throat> but Let's just even take it at face value that you're because there's less parts in an EV. That means that there's going to be 40 percent less labor. Um, why, uh, you know, why shouldn't we just keep the same amount of workers and have them work less instead of laying a bunch of people off and sending all of the excess uh, profits to the top? Well, I mean, it depends on what they think is best for their company in terms of sending excess profits to the top. I mean, we could get into a whole conversation on whether having it in stocks, having is all just sending it to the top. You know, you have a lot of different mutual funds, a lot of different people investing in these stocks that are dependent. Not all of those people are necessarily at the top. But in terms of the EVs, the EV, I have to say, just kind of on a side note, is a whole this is another example of I'm not sure the marketplace working because a lot of that is heavily subsidized by by the federal government. So that's like a whole nother thing. I don't know if we should be doing that. And that's part of what, you know, forced that's part of what encouraged the unions to do this in the first place, because they saw a lot of what the automakers were trying to do because of the green, you know, the green energy stuff being pushed by the federal government. But I just tend to think that the company should be able to decide those things. So if you have different people uh, that are managing the company and they say, you know what, this is more productive to give them less hours and they're more productive in that way, that's fine. But I just don't think that's what we're doing now. We're kind of like, well, they deserve this. We're going to collectively bargain and we're going to force your hand. And then in a couple of years, if that didn't end up turning out, well, it's like, too bad. You know, they, there's no flexibility there once these contracts are kind of set in place, unless I'm wrong about that. Uh, well, no, I mean, contracts expire in, um, con- you know, contracts are typically between three and five years. This one is four and a half years. Um, but I mean, there it, in, in events like, I, you know, 2008, 2009, when all this happened, uh, I think it was mid contract cycle. So when there are big disruptions, uh, if both parties agree, there can be, you know, there there are always provisions for, you know, emergency changes if they're needed. Um, but, you know, the the um, 
you know, this is what this is exactly the same thing that people said with with the 40 hour work week or with the eight hour work day. And we've seen, you know, uh, that actually, the, you know, the American workers is working more than uh, than we used to, I think, 20, 30 years ago, even as product uh, productivity has increased. Um, and so all of those gains have gone, you know, to the top. And, and you know, you said that some, and, and you said a couple of times that a, a lot of these stocks, you know, uh, some of it's held in retirement funds and mutual funds and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, 80 percent of the stocks are owned by the top like 10 percent of the population. So, you know, even if some of some of some of us are going to benefit from this, the the majority of people are not going to see the benefit of, uh, you know, stock price increase or dividends and stuff like that. And so, you know, but the why why shouldn't we have uh you know a shorter work week as we're being more productive um the same as we did when we got the 40 hour work week i mean people do it in and actually gm and stellantis do this in europe where you know germany and france have 35 hour work weeks and they have plants over there producing vehicles um and so you know it's it's just kind of funny them saying that it's this such an unreasonable thing and they're doing almost the exact same thing in germany and france over in europe I mean, it's just hard for me to believe that it's really, I mean, your, your base argument is that we don't need 40 hours, that we're productive with 30 hours. I mean, would we be even more productive? No, 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 40 that's hours? Not, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying huh. that, um, I'm saying that over the years, you know, with automation mm -hmm. and process improvements and all of this kind of stuff, the average worker is more productive than, than the average. So one gotcha. hour of labor today produces like 1.5 widgets where one hour of labor 30 years ago produced 1.2, right? That's what I'm saying. Gotcha. And so I'm saying that, that we don't need the 40 hours and, 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 and in, in vast sectors of the economy, we could cut the work, the, uh, the work week to 32 hours a week and then hire more workers and create more jobs and give everybody more free time to do what, to do what we want and potentially, you know, to start our own business. If we have more free time, we have more time to do entrepreneurial things, uh, to do, uh, and stuff like this. And then there are actually arguments and studies that, that I think are very, um, that I think are very persuasive that uh, show that in, you know, white collar environments that actually when you shorten the work week, you do get more productive. Actually, it's uh, it doesn't translate to production mm -hmm. and, you know, trades and stuff like that, I think, for obvious reasons. Um, but there have been multiple studies that I've, I've found persuasive that show that, it, you know, if you've got a desk job, actually, yeah, if you only work 32 hours a week, you do get more done uh, than you would in 40 hours a week where you spend that eight hours pretending you're, you know, doing something. <laughs> Well, and, and my and I guess my whole point is that um, in terms of those specific businesses, and you admitted it's more white collar jobs, maybe they look at the studies and they try that out and they're like, you know, this actually has made us more productive. But you can also make the argument that, you know, you say we don't need that extra productivity. Well, maybe we do. Maybe we can make <clears throat> even more widgets, even more automobiles and sell them for cheaper because you had that eight hours you said there because you're getting more productivity per hour. Well, you keep that extra eight hours in place, that's even more productivity, that's even more things sold, so they can lower the prices, and that's pretty good for consumers overall, and that can also kind of uh, keep a check on inflation overall as well. I just don't think, like, when I look at a 40-hour work week, I don't think that it's that burdensome for individuals to work 40 hours. I, I just, I just don't. I would much rather 
and it should be up to the companies, like you said, but I would much rather that product extra productivity go into more productivity for the business, more products and services. They can sell it at a lower price, and that benefits the economy overall. Now, this could change, though, because, like you said, we have labor shortages, and maybe businesses decide that they're going to, okay, well, just make it work 32 hours a week because we really want to get your – we really want to get you to work here because that other businesses is doing the same thing. I would much rather it be done by competition through businesses than to just kind of say all of a sudden, well, we're more productive. Let's uh, just force this down the company's throat now. So there, there are two arguments, and, and I want to flesh those out a little bit, and then, and then we can let you go, and I appreciate your time. 32-hour work week, you yeah. said not burden uh, – or a 40-hour work week, you said not burdensome. And I actually I, – I, I very strongly disagree with that, actually. Um, I, I think that, that – uh, and, and, you know, obviously everything is relative. You know, people used to work, and some people – and people in the UAW, you know, work 70-hour work weeks and, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that. And people today work 70-hour work weeks. And, and you know, to an, to an extent, the 40-hour work week is actually something of a by, is, is a product of a bygone era that we don't have anymore for very many people. But even for the folks that do just have the 9-to-5 grind, you know, you get up and you have to drive – you know, 30 minutes to work, 45 minutes to work. Some people in cities who, who you know, they can't drive or, uh, you know, they have to commute. And so some of them can have an hour commute. Um, and I know some people on the Arsenal, actually, that, that drive an hour and a half to get here, which is insane. But, you know, some people do it. Uh, you know, so you drive 30 minutes, hour and a half, and then you work your eight hours. You have to take 30 minutes to an hour for lunch that you don't get paid for, by and large. And then you drive another 30 minutes to an hour and a half to get home. You can really, really easily, and then you got to get ready. You got to get ready for work. And then when you get home, you got to like decompress. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, uh, like I don't want to do very much immediately after I get off of work. And so you really do in an eight hour workday lose all the whole day, <clears throat> basically. You don't have any time to do anything after work. And then, you know, you've got the five days that you work the whole week during this eight hour workday where you're losing basically all of every single one of those five days. And then the next day you're just beat. And then the day after that, you, you're like dreading going back to work. So I think a 40 hour work week is actually, you know, it's obviously relative and a lot of people have it worse off, but in a society where we can have a shorter work week. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, 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 it's a conversation we should be having. Well, and there are different conversations you can have in productivity. You know, a lot more people are working remotely because of the things you suggested, or, you know, I know some people that work more hours three days a week instead of working the eight hour, five days a week. And that's better. I'm not necessarily against any of that, but I also don't think, you know, you were talking about how some of it's hard for some people. I mean, I'm not going to deny that life and working hard is hard for some people, but overall, in terms of the economy, I just don't really think a 40-hour work week, when you ask every average person, really sees it as that much of a burden. And in some businesses, if they could work an extra eight hours, and that increases the productivity of the business, like I said, where they can sell more products and services at lower prices, which is good for consumers, which is good for the economy and everyone else. Uh, I tend to think that that could be better. But the, and um, I also think it depends on the individual business and the individual environment. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and 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 then you know, uh, to an extent, you know, the argument is based on it being burdensome. But then another big part of it is based on you know the fact that that we can and why shouldn't we? And it wouldn't actually be that burdensome on the companies because you know when we talk about like executive pay, you know, it wouldn't be burdensome for them to only have a hundred times the salary of their median worker but they have 300 times the median salary of their worker, right? And so, you know, we, get, we talk about whether or not it's burdensome is not is is really not even the operative question. The question is, uh, can we afford it and would it be good for society, right? Yeah, and, and I'm just not necessarily convinced. You talk about can you afford it, that depends on the business. I'm just, I guess I'm just not necessarily convinced that transforming our whole economy to a 32-hour work week would be better for society. Uh, I guess I'm just not convinced of that. And then your and, and the, the kind of really the meat of the thing, the the I, and and I guess you've you've kind of you've kind of been like wavering a little a little wishy washy on on the 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 specific points of the contracts that the UAWs reached mm-hmm. with the big three. You know, maybe they're good, maybe they're not. You know, I don't know. I just I'm I'm not totally sure. But you don't like that the workers had a had a say, right? You're kind of like ideologically opposed to that. I mean, part of it is that I just don't like the idea, one, of forcing all workers to pay union dues. We've talked about that before. But when you talk about the workers have a say, it's sort of the collective workers, which is really just under the UAW and the UAW has a say. I, I tend to believe in more of a work environment where individual workers maybe have a say because they're valuable to the company as an individual and they can come into their boss and say, you know, um, I deserve a raise instead of this. You know, that is like a little bit silly, don't you? (laughs) I don't think so. I I really don't because, because you you think that the average, you think that the average production worker at a big three automotive, at a big three plant, can could get uh, a better deal for himself negotiating for himself than the UAW got for everybody. <clears throat> yeah, I think, well, I think in certain cases, yes, I do. I, t- I tend to believe that if they are very valuable to the company. Yeah. And, and the main reason I point this out is you pointed out how, you know, we live in Huntsville, Toyota Mazda plant, not unionized. The workers do pretty well there. Our economy in Huntsville does pretty well there, and this is all done without unionization, and the cost of living is lower here. So that that's kind of where I come from on a lot of this. I just think it's a better system without sort of the collective bar- bargaining, collectivization. I, I think the market does a better job at competing for workers if it's allowed to really do that in, in terms of competition for workers. The same way they have to compete for consumers, eventually they have to compete for workers. And I think if that system was really be able, was really put in place, I think that would be better for the overall economy. But I mean, that's I mean, that's not like that's not what we see though. Is that well, I mean, we don't see in any industry a non-union uh, the a non-union company paying more or giving better benefits to to its employees than a union company in in the same industry. It's like I don't think I've ever heard of that in the five years that I've been a union activist. Well, I mean, you talked about, yeah, but the companies are doing better. I mean, the reason why you got 
you got to the point in 2007, 2008 is because they had to compete with those non-union companies. And that's what put them in a situation where it's like, oh, is this really good for the company? And then you looked at a lot of businesses going overseas. I mean, part of that was because they had to compete or they had to go, they had to go. So the company existing and being more productive, I think is better for the economy as a whole. Otherwise, these companies are just like, forget it. I'm going to leave the country or forget it. I'm going to move this company south because these union demands are just too much. I can't keep up with it. Well, I mean, that's not the I, I don't I don't think that it is actually the union uh, uh, stuff that that caused the crash of the auto industry in 2008. Uh, it was like the bad financial decisions of the uh, uh, and production decisions of, of the companies. I think that's uh, that's kind of generally the consensus there. And, uh, you know, that's not something that I think, unfortunately, I think since the Treaty of Detroit, uh, there's not really been any push by any union to and and this this contract really kind of broke the seal on that they started doing it a little bit but since the treaty of detroit all production decisions and um and and you know uh decisions on like what to produce and where and how and why and how much that's all been the purview and how much to pay executives non-union staff and and how much to give to shareholders all of this is totally within the purview of of the uh uh of the management you know they don't they don't ask the that's not anywhere in the union contract that they have to ask for any of that <clears throat> and so the the you know the the union's not asked to, to make all these kind of financial decisions and investment decisions um it's the it's the companies that do that and the companies that you know make themselves go bankrupt because of it okay i mean i i, I would just have to disagree i think uh the the union contracts paying people not to work uh, the amount of labor, the labor costs that were involved in GM and the big three, I think that was a big part of paying what people not put to them work. In that what situation. are you referring? What are you referring to there? Uh, the pen, the pensions. You know, people that oh, were retired, oh, but they the were still getting security. pensions. You don't, you don't, you don't yeah. think that you don't think folks should have a pension? No, I think. I mean, I think a four hundred one k is a fine system. Uh really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of companies are going to that and 401k and private in, in retirement than having the companies just pay full pensions for 20 years in some cases when those employees are no longer working for them. Well, the 401k, I mean, the reason that they do that is because it's less costly for the for the company. It's obviously like a worse deal for right. the for the employee. You don't you know, it's obviously a worse deal for the for the employee. You don't get you don't get as much for a 401k. And so it's like a lot of people have actually had to delay retirement because of the 401k kind of scam, in my view. OK, but it's like you said, it's what's good for the company. It keeps the company a lot more profitable and productive. In, instead of, I mean, that that is a huge cost on some of these companies to have to pay um, retirement pensions, sometimes 20 years. I mean, that, that, that's a big cost. That, that makes it very hard for that company to invest in other areas. Mm. Um, well, I mean, we they're paying pensions right now. And Ford has, and all of these companies, actually, I think, but Ford in particular has said, we're in a golden era. They've said these on like, you know, shareholder calls. They've never literally in the history of the company, <laughs> in the history of the company, they've never had more profits at all of these companies and they're paying pensions right now. Yeah. 
I I know. I mean, how long will those profits last? You think? How long yeah, I mean, will they last? I mean, is uh, you know, I mean, that's a that's a difficult question to answer. A lot of it is kind of, um, you know, a lot of that is going to be driven in part by market trends and in other yeah. parts by investment decisions by the companies. But I think you know, with this, uh, with the uh, with the UAW having some amount of say in the investment decisions, I think it's going to be good for the companies to actually be producing more and investing more in actually creating product um, and getting more product out to market. As opposed to sending that to people who don't work, uh, it, it, and and by that I don't mean people who worked for you know thirty years and are earning a pension. By that I mean people who own stocks, <laughs> people who don't work, people who own stocks. Those are kind of synonymous. <laughs> gotcha. So, so I mean, your basic argument then is that the money, the money, too much of the profits are just going to the top and not yeah, going to the what? workers, and you're kind of shifting the cost share. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you're I, talking about profits, profit. I mean, you you can talk about real numbers and you can talk about profit margins, but man, you look at a company that that can go away real quick with some of these big companies. It only takes a couple of years, and all of a sudden they're losing money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so the going back to the the collective collective bargaining that you you don't like that. I'm still I'm not I I I'm I'm you you said you don't like it because you prefer the market and I'm not clear as to why you don't view unions as part of the market. Um just because, you know, the individual workers have decided that they want to you know, that they want to be a part of a union, that they want to, that they would prefer to negotiate collectively as opposed to individually, or, and, and they want to have a say over the, the working conditions and, and wages and benefits and all of that. Uh, but, but I mean, that seems to me to be part of the market. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a part of, uh, I do think it's a part of human nature in terms of, Yes, people will kind of gather themselves in group groups to kind of try to bargain. But in terms of the market, I just think the the boss should say, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not going to deal with you as a union. I'll deal with individual employees or I won't do that at all. I'll fire you if I want to. Instead of having to do it as like this sort of collective of, okay, now the workers are now this union. I just don't look at it that way. The workers are groups of individuals, and some of those individuals do well. Some of those individuals do not do well, and maybe it's better for them as individuals to negotiate. And and you said that doesn't seem realistic to you. That seems kind of silly, and that's kind of where we disagree. I'm just not sure you need a union for employees to do well and for an economy to do well and for a community to do well. And we see that um, this is why the economy is expanding. In a lot of the southern states, it's one of the reasons. Uh, well, I mean, the economy is expanding in a certain extent, but you know, the w- there have been a lot of studies actually coming out recently, and there's another one that we're expecting to drop here in the next couple of months that that detail that a lot of these southern manufacturing jobs are really, really like 
there's a lot of issues with them that are not present in the union manufacturing jobs um, that that I think you know would be addressed by workers having more of a voice and uh, you know workers having more power and that's something and you know that position that the that the the employer just says well you know I'm not you know screw you I'm I'm not going to bargain with you as a union I'll bargain with you individually I mean that was the position of all of these companies at the beginning of you know when the UAW was formed uh, the only reason that they did is because uh, they had to have workers. <laughs> they had to have workers. They couldn't. They couldn't make a profit without uh, the people who were, uh, you know, part of the union. Yeah, I mean that. That's a good point. Although I, I don't know if that would be the case now. Um, frankly, I think they'd be able to find. I do not think so. They can't the find workers now. They can't find workers now to fill jobs. Even in union plants, they're having they're having issues. And I know that at non-union plants, they're having issues. But they're having the you know uh, manufacturing jobs across the board are having difficulty just filling open positions. Imagine firing a hundred and forty thousand production workers and thinking that you're going to be able to get back get a hundred forty thousand replacements. Like that would be there's no way that's impossible. Yeah. And, and I understand your point. I, I guess my point overall is you're talking about the labor shortage. I, I would much rather, instead of doing this negotiation where the union strikes and says, well, we're just not going to work, I would much rather a situation where, okay, these individuals are like, look, we're we just not going to work for this company anymore. We're going to go work somewhere else. And that forces the company to pay more. That forces the company to do better. I, I would but much rather- But you understand how that's done. less effective, right? I don't know if it is less effective. Of course, we just talked about how Toyota workers make less than uh, you know they they make less than UAW workers and have fewer benefits and all of this kind of stuff. Of course, it's less effective. It's like literally, actually, provably, well, measurably, been proven less effective. Well, the cost of living is less here, though. So, like, if the cost of living was the if the, the cost UAW of living has was plants, a lot more here. Ford's biggest plant, the most profitable plant for Ford, is in Kentucky. They've got like 20,000 okay. workers in Kentucky, the Kentucky truck plant that went on strike. They, they were one of the plants that went on strike. Like a lot of the big three, actually, they do have places in the no, South that are making the same. Yeah, I know. I, I just think overall it's just better for the economy to do it the way we have to do it where, like in Huntsville, you have a non-union thing, and you say, well, they're paid less. I mean, I know people that work there, and they're very mm -hmm. happy. And like I said, I think the cost of living, in terms of Kentucky, I guess I'd have to look at that area, but I think the cost of living is better. I think the the companies are run better. I think the products that they offer are better. I mean, that that's just what I think. Like, you look at Toyota Mazda, I talked about how much I love their products, and it's because they're not forced into these situations by the unions. Well, Yaffe, of, I'd have a I'd have a quick question. So the raises that Toyota just got, do you think that was uh, open market forces, or do you think the union uh, unions had something to do with that? Um, uh, it, it might be a combination. It, it might be that they're, uh, and I, I totally get what you guys are saying that they might be a little bit afraid that they they don't want their company to unionize, so they're going to offer better benefits and better pay because they don't want that 
they don't want them to unionize. But I also do think part of it, and you, you guys mentioned that they have already given raises. I think that part of it is, frankly, they're trying to find workers because there is a tight labor market right now. And I would much rather a more productive economy with a tight labor market force higher wages than through collective bargaining and strikes that we have seen with the unions. Uh, just super quick, and this is not scientific, but Googling cost of living in Kentucky versus Alabama. First uh, first one says Alabama is 11% more expensive than Kentucky. Uh, the cost of living in Birmingham is 1% higher than in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so those are some interesting stats there. Um, so there we go. Okay, I'd have to look at that more. Yeah, that was I, I was kind of shocked. I'm not surprised like one percent difference here or there that doesn't. But the first the first result being 11 percent more expensive in Alabama than Kentucky, that kind of surprised me. But maybe, you know, I don't know. But all right. Well, uh, Yaffe, I appreciate it. I am uh, still not convinced that workers don't deserve a say in their lives. But uh, you've made a valiant effort. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Appreciate you. All right, folks. So there we go. There we go. Always enjoy a good, uh, good conversation with with folks who disagree. If you disagree and you agree with, uh, well, let let me know what I missed in Yaffe's argument. If you would like, 844-899-8857. 844-899-TVLR If you want to get in on the show, appreciate everybody tuning in. Um, here's another. Uh, Wait, I oh man, this is I wish I had checked the messages. Wait, I thought he was arguing for us to care more about the country and the company. Aren't those collective concerns? <laughs> oh, jeez, man, I should have I should have uh I should have asked. I should have checked the text messages. That would have been a good question. The country and the company are very much collective concerns. Those are not individual concerns. That's a good point. <clears throat> um so I've got uh at least one more segment that I wanted to get to. Uh, and that's with the SAG after a strike. 160,000 actors are still on strike at uh, at some of the big media companies, and they gave a uh, and and SAG gave some guidance for Halloween that said uh, that said basically, you know, look, um, don't dress as characters from Struck Products if you're a member of sag After, We talked about this early in October. I uh, relayed that information to people because I, I had some questions about um, it, it, is SAG asking uh, nobody to dress as a Struck, as a character from a Struck product? And that was not the case. It was just members of sag After. They were asking not to dress as characters from Struck Products. And so that seems like a super reasonable request, super easy request to make if you're an actor on strike, uh, especially if you are a one of the higher paid, you know, really well off actors. You would think that would be a super, super easy thing to do. And then you would think further that if if you were going to dress as a character from a struck product, you would at least not flaunt it on social media. That's kind of what I would imagine. Um, if you were one of these wealthy, uh, you know, super wealthy actors or actresses, you would be willing to abide by that uh, to, because the union thinks that that that's going to help them in getting, a, getting a contract. But that's not what, uh, that's not what uh, Megan Fox decided to do. <laughs> Megan Fox attended a 
Casamigos Halloween Bash with her fiance, Machine Gun Kelly. They dressed as Gogo Yabari and Beatrix Kiddo, respectively, from the 2003 film Kill Bill. Uh, and then she took a picture of that and posted it on her Instagram and tagged the union with like, I think she had a winky face or something. Um, so, you know, I mean, really gross stuff from Megan Fox here. And uh, Lisa Ann Walter, uh, one of the actors on Abbott Elementary, the, the red haired teacher. Um, I forget. I'm forgetting her character's name. She's like Italian in the in the thing. And uh, she she's on the negotiating committee and she said uh, she tweeted about it. She said, what a rebel. Keep posturing for stupid shit, pretty lady. Meanwhile, we'll be working 10 hours a day unpaid to get basic contract earners a fair deal. And so. Um, so, yeah, that's that's uh, that's what happened uh, over Halloween with Megan Fox. I mean, what a what a jerk. What like that's just kind of an insane thing to do. I do not understand that. Pittsburgh dude asks, what's Machine Gun Kelly even known for other than having a stupid name? Uh, I only know about Machine Gun Kelly from him getting stomped in a uh, rap battle with Eminem. That's the only thing I remember Machine Gun Kelly from. Do you remember that rap battle? Uh, the, the diss tracks that they released against each other? Ben? I can't say I do, and honestly, I hadn't heard Megan Fox's name in quite a bit either. So I may, I'm probably <laughs> I don't do a lot. I don't usually watch TV or or cable. Keep up with a lot of stuff. I don't. I mostly think... just read politics for fun, which is yeah, probably bizarre. But yeah, uh, I think that <laughs> I'm this out is. Of the loop. I think that this is probably the most attention that Megan Fox has gotten since Transformers. Yeah, that's literally the time. I was like, it's the Transformers girl. I know who that is. Um, so one of these like tabloid news outlets collected some uh, fan comments from Twitter. Uh, one saying, uh, why is she being defiant to a group that's literally fighting for her to make a fair wage? That's a good point. Yes, girl, give it to your union trying to get better wages and benefits for lesser known people than you, indeed. And, and she's already cashed out, man. I'm yeah. no doubt Megan Fox has got some bills. Dude, she's, she's got some money. Never got to work a day in her life again if she doesn't want to. No chill. Um, Come on. Yeah. It's just bonkers. Like, um, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being like that kind of person. <laughs> um but that's what she did uh but the updates are that the major studios made an offer to sag after yesterday on friday friday november the 3rd that they hope will end the 113 day strike so we're not just tabloid reporting on gossip we're also bringing you the latest on the contract negotiations and they're also fighting uh reality um, tv at the same time because once we have real writers they'll mm. stop making as much reality TV, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. they'll actually make something that like forms coherent sentences and yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be nice, won't it? Um, so, so after that news broke that the uh, the producers had given SAG its latest offer, um, SAG uh, released a statement saying that the negotiating committee will be meeting on Saturday morning. That's the day to prepare for across the table talks with the producers in the afternoon. So uh, hopefully by the next show, we will have hopefully some good news. Hopefully the studios are coming to their senses and they're saying, we want to put an end to this and we're giving you everything that you're asking for. Um, 
or at least, you know, meeting you in some kind of reasonable middle way. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll keep you updated. I know that if you want to learn more about SAG's position, they release like a three hour uh, webinar on where they where negotiations stand and like what they're asking for. Um, so you can find that online search, you know, SAG after a bargaining webinar. You can find that. I didn't have time to listen to it and, and, clip some stuff uh if negotiations fall through this weekend i might clip some for next hmm. weekend so we'll see what happens there um but we will of course keep you up to date trying to save some jobs from ai it sounds like to me yes that's the biggest that's really the big thing the hugest thing i think yeah they need to be tackling right now yeah absolutely that's that that really is kind of the big thing is uh the ai stuff um and uh you know they're saying that these that they they need these protections for um you know uh, they're like existentially threatening the industry of actors and I, I think that that's obviously um that's obviously uh the truth so all right, well, that is, uh, that's it for us today, I think. Um, unless, Ben, you had anything that you wanted to make sure that, we, that, that you had anything burning on your mind. Hey, that you tune talk in about. next weekend. Tune in next weekend. 32-hour live stream, Friday, 9.30 a.m. Central Time, tvlr.fm slash strike fundraiser. Donate. Tell your friends. If you have any contacts with anybody in uh, leadership of a local of, of an international union or, or local union, that they, they want to call in and talk to us, we're just going to be, you know, it, it's not all, obviously. There would not, we could not fill 32 hours of content just about the UAW strike at Mack Trucks and the BCTGM strike at IFF in Memphis. So uh, most of it, it's just going to be shooting the shit with people talking about whatever the hell they're talking about. You know, what, what are they up to? Right. Uh, and what's some of the guests we got? Sam Cedar's a big one, right? We've got Sam Cedar lined up. We have, uh, David Griscom and Matt Leck lined up, uh, Barry Eidlin, Kim Kelly, Boshkar Sankara, Max Alvarez, uh, Hayden Wright, um, we got a lot of folks already confirmed, uh, but still a lot of, uh, still a lot of time left to fill. And if y'all know anybody that, um, I'm sure we'll be taking callers too. Oh yeah. We'll be taking most of the callers. time. So yeah, get, get your, get your view in here. And if you know anybody, especially like a big name, uh, person, um, tell them to, uh, reach out to us and we can get them in the schedule. Um, particularly if they are a, um, if they're a night owl, because the, <laughs> yes. uh, the one to, um, you know, yeah. the, the 10 PM to like 4 AM slots are very hard to fill. So. I was about to say, I've done some 24 hour streams before <laughs> and it's at like 4 AM where the staff's kind of got that glaze in their eyes and yeah. like, we're trying to like figure out which room we're standing in. Yeah. We need, that's when we need you guys that are work night shift to be like, Hey, what's up? Yes. And start yelling. <laughs> start, oh, dude, start. That would, yeah, that would be great. I think Get Lee Baines is, I think Lee Baines is going to be coming on at some point. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. We're going to have a lot uh, yeah. of good people to talk to. So, um, and, uh, and maybe one of the things that I, I want to do, I, I want to get a more comfortable chair for the live stream. I want to <laughs> get something, I, maybe I'll bring a chair from home or something, maybe a beanbag. Cushy. Um, and maybe I can get something like play a game. I don't know what kind of game I should play. Games. Um, but I'll be thinking about that this week. Labor-related games we're talking? No, nah, just any kind of game. Just any kind of game. I don't know. Last time when we did this, I played Among Us with some people. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's cool anymore. I think that's gone. So, 
Yeah, honestly, I'm not cued in on that. Hey, I started playing Minecraft again, man. Oh, I'm dude. like I'm a thirty something year old man, thirty four. Every few and, years, uh, every few years, I'll get on a Minecraft stint, um, and it's and like play. totally different too. All yeah. the people online, they're just like, "Yeah, this is a." Uh, this is the new generation, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know you could do all that." I saw I that feel there like was an old person. There was a um, uh, there was this video circulating around on Twitter of like a hundred kids in Minecraft <laughs> carrying Palestine flags <laughs> because wow. they couldn't go to a protest. Yeah, and so they were like marching wow. on a server with like a hundred each of them carrying a Palestine flag. <laughs> you know? Well, when so, they when they outlaw certain uh, types of speech in certain places, yeah, jeez, mm. yeah, yeah, Minecraft Take will be it. the bastion oh, of free speech. Uh, so. All right, oh, folks, we'll, uh, we'll head on out. Appreciate Thanks everybody tuning in. Us, like guys. the stream on the way out. Subscribe to the channel. Um, when did they say this was? Friday, no uh, Friday, November 10th at 9.30 a.m. Till Saturday, November 11th, 5.30 p.m. 32 hours, Friday, 9.30 a.m., November 10th. 32 hours, live stream, raising money. Join us. See you then.